Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. As it happens earlier this week, there was a Japanese startup company called iSpace which attempted the first private company landing on the moon. It lost communication with the spacecraft and then said its lunar mission had failed. But it raises all sorts of interesting questions as to who is entitled to actually land on the moon. Is it private corporations as well as governments? Which governments? And then all about the various legal and logistical rights to the use of space. Now, as it happens in the past, we've had Tim Marshall with us talking about his great books, The Power of Geography and Prisoners of Geography. But this might be his best book yet and how well-timed it is, The Future of Geography, which moves into space. Tim Marshall, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you and thanks for that nice introduction. Well, this is a great story to tell and a great look into the future. So can you clear up for us, who has the right to land anything on the moon? Everyone. When you get there, though, you cannot say, this bit's mine. Um, But I believe that that consensus is fraying and people are going to be using... Uh, language to get around that that concept, which uh, means we really ought to update our rules and regulations for the 21st century. And why is getting onto the moon important? Well, you mentioned uh, that Japanese company, and, and it's interesting that it is private enterprise, which is probably ahead of both the state and indeed the law. Um, There's a number of reasons. If we take the commercial reasons, and this is why people are going back now, what is it, 50 years on from the last time, there is a whole bunch of stuff on the moon that we need for our 21st century technology. There is um, uh, hydrogen uh, in in the water ice that's there, and they found tens of millions of gallons of, of water ice in the south pole of the moon. There's things like lithium which we have in our mobile phones and in our car batteries, etc. And there's a whole bunch of rare earth materials, uh, other, other precious metals. And the economic model is not certain, but are you going to be the major company or the major state that is going to say, well, we're not going to bother going for what could be the new oil for the next you know, several hundred years? We'll just let everybody else. No chance. And that's why the, the, the race is back on. There is also a military aspect to it, but I think that is secondary. And then there's the exploration aspect. There's been a huge debate. Do we try and go straight for Mars or do we go back to the moon, build a base and use it as the jumping off point? And at the moment, uh, that, that latter argument has won the day. OK, talk to me more though about the what can be extracted from the moon the hydrogen in water, for example, mm. how would you be able to bring that back? And what use would you put to it if you brought it back? You, well, hydrogen is just is just one of the things. But also it, what it what it means is if it's if it's up there, you can actually help. You can turn that into fuel to get back or for the onward journeys. So that that's one aspect. But it but it's. It's the other thing as well. Well, there's helium-3 as well, which is a complicated thing, but we have helium-4 on Earth because it's refracted through the atmosphere. No atmosphere on the moon. There's helium-3. And if, and it's a massive if, if you crack uh, nuclear fusion, not fission, fusion, which is they've been working on for four decades now, 
in theory, you can take the hydrogen, the helium-3 back to Earth. Only small amounts of it can be used for enormous amounts of clean nuclear energy, radiation-free nuclear energy. All right, but actually as to how, there's already two space planes. The Americans have got one. The uh, Chinese have got another, and they're both robotic planes. The American one was up in space for a year and a half. They're sort of similar looking to the space shuttle. If this is economically viable, you can transport uh, large amounts of cargo back down to Earth. And given how incredibly useful this energy sources are, theoretically, the economic model is, is there. Certainly for things like lithium, of which there is a finite amount here, here on Earth, then, um, you know, what, once, you, once you've made the investment of getting there, finding it and digging it, getting it back is actually uh, not the worst of the challenges. But finding it and digging it presumably would all have to be done by robotics, would it? Or would you send humans there to do it? I think you'd do both. I think the, 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 there's, there's, there'd be a mix. Now, robotics is going to be a big part of this. But 3D printing, uh, so the robotics can do a lot of that, but you're still going to need people up there. You don't need huge numbers, but the Americans uh, and the Chinese with Russia as their junior partner, both of those entities intend to start building a moon base in the early 2030s. The Americans, under the Artemis program, uh, intend to have a man and a woman uh, on the moon surface in 2026. It was supposed to be 2025, it slipped already, 2026. And then after that, every year more people go back and then they begin to build the moon base in the early 2030s. The Chinese and the Russians uh, with the similar sorts of timeframes. Robotics, yes, um, the 3D printing is robotics, but you will need uh, a certain amount of people. Not not the one million on Mars, according to Musk, by 2050, which I think is fantasy. But I think in I think we're looking at dozens of people living on the on the moon early in the next decade, possibly. But then, under whose jurisdiction? The Americans, or the Chinese, or the Russians, or somebody else's? <laughs> yeah, this is the big one, isn't it? And that's what I meant at the beginning of the conversation about, I think, things are fraying, and it's about language. There's the Outer Space Treaty, 1967. And under it, nobody can appropriate a, uh, a planet, or, or indeed the moon, which is not a planet. Uh, it's for the common good of humanity. But in the Artemis Accords, for example, there's a, a little um, thing that talks about safety zones. Because, and it's understandable if you've put all that investment in to find the stuff, get up there and start digging, that you want to protect it. And so the 20 or so countries that have signed that agree that you can declare a safety zone in an area of your choosing, a size of your choosing and a duration of your choosing. But it follows that if somebody else then shows up who isn't an Artemis country, uh, very close to you, and you start quoting the Artemis Accords, they're going to say, well, I, I never signed that. So it's a very good example of A, how because of the commercial imperative, uh, it looks like uh, people will be staking claims, not dissimilar to the Klondike gold rush, uh, and B, another example of why we need urgently a 21st century space treaty. Because it's not just the moon or the planets, 
it's actually space itself. With how many satellites is it reckoned are orbiting the world at the moment been sent up by both countries and by private interests? It's uh, up to uh, approximately 8,000 working ones at the moment, and there's two or 3,000 which are uh, defunct. Um, and that sounds like a lot, 8,000 whizzing around in low Earth orbit. But between now and the end of this decade, it'll probably go to at least 20,000. And that's a conservative estimate. Musk himself, Elon Musk of SpaceX, wants another 10,000. The Chinese are launching them hand over fist. Uh, and, and many countries are. Indeed, Ireland is uh, just, um, you've made your own and you're waiting to, to get it up and join, what is it, the 80 countries now, I think it is, that have a presence in space. Okay. And again, what's the safety of all of those? I mean, what is the danger, yeah. first of all, that they might crash into each other, or is yeah. there any danger of that? But beyond that, that they could become subject of hostilities between countries. I think they will be armed uh, within a few years. And the reason for that is that I, I think once it's it's overwhelmingly apparent that they are part actually of our critical infrastructure. Well, every nation protects its critical infrastructure in one way or another. So um, let me deal with the first bit, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, there's always a danger of them crashing into each other. Uh, and there is something called the Kessler syndrome where one crashes into another uh, the debris then crashes into another, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a cascade effect, which would be catastrophic. Another reason why we need a global agreement to keep an eye on all the debris and, and, and openly say this is exactly where our satellites are, what we intend to do, et cetera. So there's that aspect to it. The French are openly talking about arming them. And what you would arm them with is not conventional weapons and not weapons of mass destruction, which are banned on the outdated treaty. But down on Earth, several countries now have direct energy beam weapons. The Americans, for example, have shot down a drone using a burst of electricity. Now, that costs a few dollars. If you want to shoot down a drone with a missile, you're talking about $200,000. So it's pretty obvious what direction that's going to go in. So simply take that technology up and stick it on a satellite. We don't have the rules and regulations against that because when the treaties were drawn up, there were no such weapons. Uh, another problem is the satellites, the leading nations, early warning nuclear systems are embedded in the satellites. In order to get rid of space debris, one of the things you do, and the Japanese have pioneered this, you have robotic arms. They are on your satellite, a satellite. It goes up to a defunct satellite, grabs hold of it, throws it into the atmosphere where it burns up. Great. But of course, if it can do that, it can also get hold of my early warning system satellite and disassemble, uh, throw that into the atmosphere. So I would get very, very nervous if you're creeping up behind my satellite. And again, we just don't have the rules, uh, the well, rules of the road, the norms for this. One final thing, Tim. Unfortunately, I'm out of time and I'm fascinated no. by this and there's so much more in the book. But just how important are all of these satellites to our day-to-day -day living at present so that if they were knocked out of commission, it would have a genuine impact on us? Oh, it'd, it'd be huge. You know, it's it's not just your grocery delivery. Should you get them delivered? It's it's the the all the sat navs, the GPS systems. It's the the way that the planes uh, routes that they take, ship shipping, military. 
you know, you can't fight a modern war without satellites these days. It, it's just integral. And it's, you know, one of the messages in the book is it's not the future. It's here and now. And the core message is that this is international relations. It's just moved up a level. Tim Marshall, thank you so much for being with us. The book is terrific. It's called The Future of Geography. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today, F-